Hello and welcome to Husky Talk presented by the SMU Journal, St. Mary's only student publication run for students by students. I'm your host, Jeremy Hebb, podcast contributor for the Journal. Today we'll listen to a conversation I had with NSNDP candidate for Halifax Sable Island, Lisa Lachance, about her background and her decisions to run. Now on to my interview with NDP candidate for Halifax, Lisa Lachance. Uh, unfortunately, I recorded it late, but I had asked her an opening question about her role at Wisdom to Action. The interview was recorded on December 4th. There was a national network on child abuse mental health being founded at Dalhousie University, which is how Wisdom to Action started. And so I joined that as the executive director. Um, and then we incorporated um, and became a social enterprise in 2018. Um, and so the work's just been great. So we do, we always have and still do just in different ways. Um, lots of work around children's rights and youth engagement, community engagement, community and develop, community development, social innovation. Um, so we do a lot of work with national organizations, some work with the federal government. Um, you know, example is we're currently uh, doing some research, but it's, it's youth engaged and participatory research on youth suicide prevention research gaps in Canada for the Public Health Agency of Canada and Mental Health Commission of Canada. So we do that kind of work. Yesterday we hosted um, 60 young people from across Nova Scotia um, with together with some folks from the IWK who are looking at kind of what does it mean to, for well-being for children and youth in Nova Scotia and to get young people's insights. So we had young people participating from six to just sort of above 18, so just past being officially a child. Um, and yeah, trying to make sure that their voices are part of decision making and part of the process. And how have you guys shifted online with the operations? I know you said you were you were doing some things the other day. Uh, I'm assuming it's all virtual now, right? It's all virtual now. We had, you know, <laughs> essentially because a lot of community and youth engagement is often underfunded, we had already developed some processes that were online. So we already developed a way to do some engagement and actually had been really uh, doing a great job in terms of making online engagement as a tool for more inclusive engagement. Um, and you know, so we had we had some experience. We did another project for the Public Health Agency of Canada, asking two us LGBTQ plus young people about their experiences with gender-based violence um, and also what they wanted to see done about it. And so that was a national project, and that was all online. It was a small small project. So you know, we did survey, we did online focus groups, we did a discussion guide so people could host their own conversations in community, um, and then we had a youth advisory that led through all of the analysis and recommendations and writing of that report. So, so basically we'd already been like honing our, our tools. Um, yeah. We did our last in-person event, March 9th and 10th in Toronto, basically the world completely changed. So yeah, so we're just, we're doing, you know, we're having a lot of fun using different ways of connecting with people online. And yeah, so you're, you're well suited and ready for, uh, for an yeah. election there for sure. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you guys, you guys work a lot with, you said with, uh, with like local IWK child welfare, um, um programs like that. Uh, yeah. and that, that before that you were working, uh, with the, um, the Nova Scotia government with the mm -hmm. department of finance. Uh, did yeah. you want to talk about your role there? I think it was, uh, uh, chief policy officer. Was it? Yeah. Director. Well, the first director of policy that the department had. So I had, um, completed a master's in public administration in 2000 at Dalhousie and then, 
my partner and I moved to Ottawa, so spent some time in the federal government, and then we came back, and that was that was the role. Um, I mean, I think you know, uh, you know, that was a really interesting introduction to working in the Nova Scotia government for sure. I came in uh, just as a budget was being written, and you know, one of the first things I got to do was go around and talk to the deputy minister of every department um, about what the budget meant for them, and you know what were their key priorities and how this budget might be meeting those. So it was a great immersion into how things work and, and um, you know, the particular constraints and opportunities that we have in Nova Scotia as a jurisdiction. You worked, you said you worked in the Privy Council office before that. And so you kind of have like a, like an understanding of the, the, ma the machinations of government and uh, the slow processes. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and yeah, I mean, I am, I do lots of fun, creative work, but I am a bit of a policy wonk at the end of the day. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I, so, um, yeah, so I spent time in the Privy Council office, which was like, uh, you know, I just say, I mean, it was just a huge learning experience in terms of, um, a little, I mean, honestly, it was, um, and you worked on, in, you worked on indigenous issues there mainly. Yeah. With, with so what I was going to say is that yeah. it was really, um, wake up. I think I had my reconciliation decolonization <laughs> moment uh, a little earlier than a lot of other Canadians simply because becoming immersed in that but not only immersed in that but also like an agent of government in that um, and it was a good time to do it because Paul Martin was um, prime minister and there was the Kelowna Accords so there was a huge amount of goodwill but that couldn't sort of mask an overall system that you know doesn't do much for for equality and for sort of you know restitution yeah. and that sort of thing. Right now, you're taking your your PhD in health from from Dalhousie, mm -hmm. yeah. Alongside uh, the wisdom to action, and then you're looking at running for the NDP in the upcoming election. Um, I am running for the NDP in the upcoming election. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I was I was wondering uh, why you decided to run uh, in this particular election, and 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 specifically why you chose the NDP. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I've been a member of the federal and provincial NDP for a long time, and I've been on the doorstep for various um, NDP candidates. So in Ottawa for Ed Broadbent and Paul Dewar at the federal level, and here um, in Nova Scotia for uh, Gary Burrell, for Lisa Roberts, and then um, also for Christine Saunier. So, so that's pretty consistent. Um, and um, in terms of timing and why this election, I mean, you know, uh, one of our, you know, I said I really wanted to become part of youth mental health sector and change in that sector. And, and that was really driven by my own personal experiences. So both I was a young carer for my mom who had significant mental illness, sort of, well, obviously back in the day, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then uh, with our son, who also really early on had significant mental health needs and you know the system hadn't changed and the system maybe had gotten worse and the gaps in the system and the way people with families with can fall through the system was just uh well i was angry and uh and terrified as i was trying to keep our family together and and so really became aware of how we have all these systems that you know can leave make even sort of strong families very vulnerable. Like, you know, we only were able to sort of hold together well because we had enormous amounts of other types of, you know, family support. Uh, we had government jobs, like we, you know, we had all these sort of things going for us. Um, and um, so really wanted to make change. Like, I just think, you know, both as a policy wonk, when I've written those letters, I said, thank you very much for your letter, but that's a provincial jurisdiction or, 
vice versa. I've, I've written a few of those, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so either when you have those or, you know, just like, um, yeah, just being told like door after door after door closing and just thinking about all the people who get lost along the way. Like this is, we just, those are, those answers aren't good enough any, anymore. So. So it doesn't, it doesn't sound to me like you're, you're interested in the, the incremental change uh, platforms that you've seen. And, and it's more just a, like a, an actual um, reform or restoration that, that you're looking for. Well, and I think that, you know, I, I do think um, this pandemic ha is, I mean, I, and I'm not to be like, um, you know, over, you know, unrealistically positive about the impact. Like it is a terrible thing and, and the world would have been better without a pandemic, like 100%. However, um, I think that um, it's really exposed where the gaps are, you know, and I've had people say, well, after this, it'll be the economy. That's the, that's the most important thing. Like, right. But what we learned about this economy is that it's incredibly fragile, first of all, in terms of like how it's been built on, you know, exploitation of natural resources. We've learned that, in fact, women's place in the workforce was not secure, like that there are still huge, um, you know, systems of, um, oppression that mean that women's workforce participation rates have fallen to the 1980s. And I don't think anybody thought that, right? Like how, how can a year undo that? Um, so I think, I think it is a real opportunity, like that whole like build back better and all that sort of stuff, but like, it's true, right? It's like, well, okay, right. We do have to pay attention to the economy now, but we better do it a different way because how we've all been doing it doesn't make sense. And, and I do think, I mean, what I hear time and time and time again from young people, is um, you know this has shown people that when actually when government actually has to respond quickly they can. So when you know I think when young people are so tired of being told that you know climate change, blah 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 blah, taking a long time, got to retool the economy, they're like actually you know what government could do this in a year. Like if government really wanted to do it, they could do it in a year. And or, so or the way yeah. they talk with the side of their mouth with the uh, with the you know over for climate change, and then in the same sentence they say about pipelines, like things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So really, I think it's exposed to a lot of young people that if you make it a priority, it can happen actually. Um, and so like clearly, when nothing happens, then it's not a priority for government. So. Yeah, and it's, it seems to me that like a lot of our economy has been uh, the focus is on, you know, these outdated uh, numbers like, you know, just straight up GDP numbers, worrying about the large deficits and, and not actually analyzing everything like independently. Like if you're going to spend money on, let's say, childcare, uh, it's going to cost you 50 billion up front or whatever, but you're going to make more than that in the long run. Right. right. Yeah. And we don't have very sophisticated ways of understanding that, you know, and it certainly in the youth serving sector, there's a lot of, there's, there, I was gonna say there's a lot, there's some work being done because people don't have time to do it because they're, you know, responding to youth needs, but um, around sort of social return on investment, right? And so like, how do you, how, like you're like, in terms of like childcare, how do you count what did or didn't happen in the future that factors into like how much something costs? You know, we don't know a lot about how we're doing, like it would be, I mean, this is the whole point of this project being led through the IWK in terms of well-being for children and youth in Nova Scotia. But at the end of the day, we have like a handful of indicators that we, you know, inconsistently collect. And we actually don't really know how young people are doing in Nova Scotia. We do not have a comprehensive picture. And so we have no idea then if what we're doing has any effect, right? Like this is, you know, you can't, you, we can suspect where there are issues, but we don't, we actually just, don't know enough about it so and then there are some things like you know i said we had our last in-person meeting um, event a social innovation lab in toronto march 9th and 10th 
and a very, you know, fairly conservative uh, youth psychiatrist, uh, the big serve, um, you know, her big idea was universal basic income. Like that's actually what we need to start at when we want to address youth mental health. And she's right. I mean, she, you know, but you know, I remember thinking, but that'll never go anywhere. That's too radical. And then of course, like nine months later, um, we've seen that actually, if you support people well, um, then in fact, you know, like the, actually the economic impacts aren't as great as they would have been if we had just let people like lose their jobs and lose their homes and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think that it's advanced a lot of discussions. It's advanced innovation in healthcare and in youth mental health, like 10 years, what would have taken forever, you know, and, you know, friends of mine who have disabilities who, you know, couldn't get accommodations for their medical appointments or for their work or that sort of thing, all that's happening now. So we need to keep some of that stuff that we've learned um, about rapidly transforming things um, and then address what isn't working. Uh, and then I wanted to ask about uh, a couple specific policies, uh, um, uh, mainly about like the a big one for me was the opioid epidemic in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't get talked a lot about on the East Coast as it does on the West Coast, where you know they have more public available data, and 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 obviously it seems to be more of an issue out there than it is out here. But it doesn't make it any more of a or any less of an issue out here. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if if you had any comments about um, about what 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 we can do to help uh, combat that. I know that. You know, we've tried a few things like a like a safe injection site, and uh, and uh, but we haven't really done a great job of attacking the, uh, the systemic root problems of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think well, and you know, as we've already been discussing, so I mean, there are systemic issues um, around you know unhealthy substance use and how people get into you know um, spirals of of. Um, substance use and and then impacting everything from their education, employment, housing, families, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm definitely um, a big proponent of harm reduction. So, um, in the like long time ago, I feel like I'm like telling stories from like ancient history. But in the <laughs> early 1990s, um, when I was at Dell the first time, um, I started volunteering with Stepping Stone, um, and then and I've been involved ever since. I'm still on the board. I was president for a number of years recently. And that was my first introduction actually to, to harm reduction. And I only remember if they use those words because it was on the ground service delivery, right? Like, like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all <laughs> fancified in terms of language and stuff. But um, so that was definitely my first, um, you know, introduction sort of rights-based, um, user-directed, participatory harm reduction. And that, that just makes like a ton of sense to me. Um, I volunteered, I worked for a summer in New York City and volunteered at the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. Um, and again, this was in the 90s. So, so the Lower East Side was still kind of like the Lower East Side was. Um, and, uh, and I did the needle exchange. So like I'd go on Tuesday nights and count needles and give clean needles out and all that sort of stuff. And that again, just really exemplified like if you, if you give people the dignity and the right to safely um, access things like, like you can live a, like this doesn't actually have to be a public health crisis um, even if people continue to use substances like that's just you know there'd be people coming in who had used heroin for like several decades um, and managed to you know then they had a career and they had all these things and so they were doing great and then you know then there are people who like yeah just had a like landed in a different way and, and 
their substance use was affecting their lives much differently. So definitely harm reduction, definitely safe ejection sites, definitely, I mean, I'm a, I'm a proponent of decriminalization. Um, and, you know, and I think, and then, you know, I think there's, I, I, I actually don't know my necessarily my decriminalization policy super well, but basically the principle <laughs> and, uh, but you know, around cannabis um, legalization, I was involved in a lot of the youth consultations around that. And, you know, we still didn't get it quite right, you know, in terms of like the age and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I do think it was an important step. Yeah, that's uh, that's one thing I've always like wondered, like why the NSLC even has like a marketing budget. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, the, like why the government's pushing us to like sell products uh, of like alcohol and and, and tobacco and and uh, or not tobacco, but alcohol and uh, cannabis. But, yeah, uh, well, and certainly that's what you know. In all the consultations around that, um, I mean, lots of young people, uh, you know, who use substances or you know. Uh, uh, you know, ha we're active in that space, you know, we're kind of saying like, we haven't done alcohol policy well, like we sell it like a lifestyle. So don't, don't sort of do the same thing. And then, well, we just did the same thing. And, yeah. you know, um, yeah, we gave it to the same agency, right? So, yeah. Um, and then uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, we've been talking a lot about mental health, but uh, um, I noticed that a couple weeks ago, during one of the press conferences, Stephen McNeil said uh, that they're working on returning to normalcy for, for mental health reasons, but they're not funding mental health right. uh, care at the same time. Uh, uh, is there like a, co a coherent policy that you guys had in mind uh, in particular for, uh, for funding mental health? So I don't know where we're at um, in terms of uh, the NDP policy around a funding model. So I would have to check in and get back to you about that. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of ways we can do things differently. So a lot of um, the things that I've been interested in are a model called integrated youth services, which, you know, you know, New Brunswick is one big integrated youth service at this point, and Eskasoni here in Nova Scotia joined a national project and thus built their own integrated youth service. So, and, I've, and you know, so I think there's like lots of ways we can improve things to have better outcomes. Um, I don't think that the health transfers have kept pace with the cost of health. So I do think there's a renegotiation that has to happen. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, federal government can, as they did, like give provinces health money and say, actually, this is mental health, right? So just like pushing it from that way too. Man so. Mandate it more from the, from the federal yeah. side, yeah. A couple more things uh, about affordable housing and, and rent caps. I know... The NDP introduced uh, in 2018, I think it was, they introduced a, a, rent, a rent cap uh, relief that just hasn't been talked about at all, like a, like a bill in the legislature. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering what, uh, I know that's going to be a big issue for your, for your local uh, district in Halifax, right? Mm -hmm. um, what the affordable housing and, and rental policies were for the NDP and, or for yourself. Well, and again, um, hopefully I can articulate enough of the NDP policies at yeah, this point. But um, so, I mean, obviously we've been calling for rent control for a long time and, and the rent cap. And, you know, I think what the liberals have introduced is like, it's, it, they can say that they'll do rent control for a few months, but fundamentally it's not a sectoral change. So it's a, it's a band aid. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's even barely a band aid. It doesn't even go back to the beginning <laughs> of the, like, it's like, it doesn't go back to the beginning of the pandemic. It probably can't because lots of people lost their rental property, like their rental homes when people started raising rents over the summer. Right. So there's probably sort of no way to repair that harm. 
Um, and it only goes until February 2021 or whenever the pandemic is over. So like really it's just, it's not, it's not actually a, like a policy commitment to the principle, I don't think. So, um, so I think a long-term, you know, policy commitment um, to that. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about licensing landlords and sort of monitoring from that way too, um, which, um, you know, on the face of it seems to make a lot of sense. Like we, we register businesses and we make sure, you know, we register restaurants and make sure they're clean. And, you know, when we do a lot of these things to make sure people are safe and treated fairly. Um, and then I think, um, you know, just thinking about affordable housing development and how can we support that. Um, so longer term, you know, that, that becomes an ongoing part of, of, you know, renovations or new builds and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, you know, it's very complicated. Our, our church, um, which is St. John's United, spent about 10 years trying to get a proposal through um, the, well, through HRM uh, to build on the, the side of the old church. And the intent was to build like some market rate housing, but also some affordable housing that would be targeted to LGBTQ plus seniors, um, and then to have community space on the main floor. Anyways, to do all that, of course, it had to be, it had to be a bit taller, like you have to make them bigger to have all the mixed housing and and so it was it basically wasn't approved and there was opposition in the neighborhood which i understand except that now you know the building's been sold it's being developed like now it's like now you know it's it's not going to be community space and it's not going to be for queer seniors and um you know and they're still going to have a big new building going in the next door The last thing that the NDP talked about before uh, the prorogation of, of the legislature was there was a climate emergency bill tabled. Um, mm. Obviously, that's got to be a, a major issue and probably the first big discussion that'll happen uh, that's not COVID-related. Um, yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about uh, uh, about the green economy uh, uh, post-COVID and 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 sort of your your vision there of of how we we move forward economically uh, with a green focus. Right. Well, and so I think that's, I mean, that's part of it um, for me too, is like, I, we, I don't think we should take one step past COVID, you know, wh whatever that means, um, without, you know, having some of our other huge priority issues hand in hand. And so, you know, climate justice and climate sustainability being one of them. I mean, I think encouraging, you know, um, it does mean a shift in energy production, but like, how can we support that and you know and I, I think the other opportunity for Nova Scotia for Halifax for sure um, and then Nova Scotia writ large is you know I think as we have had through this experience people are realizing that they can work from different parts of the country and I think that you know you know well done we can encourage people to not only like come back to Nova Scotia or come to Nova Scotia and settle in Halifax or settle outside of Halifax but also um, you know, bring with them the types of, you know, green energy production and, and that sort of stuff that, that might happen in other jurisdictions and actually use that as an engine of growth and job creation and, and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I think, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, working with industry to um, industries, like all of them, <laughs> to figure out uh, their impact. I, you know, I think personal action is super important in climate change, but fundamentally it's not going to like turn the ship. Um, so, um, yeah, thinking about how to systemically shift over to greener energy and, and that sort of thing. 
the leader uh, of the party, Gary Gary Burrell, uh, describes himself as a as an unabashed uh, democratic socialist. Is that sort of where you would put yourself on if you had to on a political spectrum? So I I was thinking about this like where do I land on the political spectrum, and um, I guess I need to think about that a little bit more. I mean I like I definitely um, you know sort of equality and equity and justice have definitely been at the heart of uh, my whole life in terms of my work and my family life and and my volunteer work and my advocacy. So um, and you know, and I do think that we have seen over the, like within a year, which is kind of amazing, um, you know, models around um, more sort of um, like things like universal basic income that actually now people are like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. You're right. Um, because, you know, I think we believe in, you know, Canadians writ large believe in income, income and social equality. Um, I don't think people, uh, you know, and I think, yeah, everybody is, you know, most people are like happy to do their part, you know, and be part of that system. And so, yeah, so all the just things, I don't know where I would put myself, uh, like, uh, um, but I mean, I guess I'm probably a social democrat, but I need to like figure that out. So yeah, yeah. that's cool. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I, it, it's been a long time since my political theory classes. So yeah. I'll have to go back. No, it, it sounds to me like you're like, obviously you're on the progressive side of like pretty much every, every, uh, every topic and, and, and willing to hear ideas out, I think is, is, is the biggest thing for me, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, that's, I mean, I love the work I do. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just really creating like trusting, you know, communities and organizations that when given the space and the tools, um, can solve complex problems and can come up with some really neat ideas. So it's definitely uh, a key part of how I see the world working. Um, as someone who used to work in the uh, Department of Finance, uh, why is it such a big deal that um, they haven't actually done a COVID budget and that uh, a lot of the information is, is not transparent and, and, and secretive? But I'm, I'm sure a lot of students don't really understand like, like why, why that's a big deal. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing that everyone needs to understand about budgets is actually that they are actually, um, they're often, you know, they're called, they're actually called the estimates because they're an estimate, right? So you, you, you sort of do your best research in terms of economic growth and, or, well, hopefully growth um, or <laughs> decline. Um, so it's like, what's, what's going to happen in the economy? If that happens in the economy, how much taxation revenue does that, you know, result in for, for Nova Scotia, for instance? Uh, you know, who do we owe money to? Um, so it's kind of like sitting down looking at your own budget and be like, okay, so right now, you know, I have this job that pays this much an hour and, you know, maybe in the summer I'll have a job that pays me $18 an hour, but I don't know that yet. But maybe if I did, then my budget for the next fall would be this. So that's basically what the budgeting process is, right? It's like, okay, well, we hope this happens. Uh, we hope that the folks that we borrow money from will, uh, you know, sort of keep letting us borrow some money or, you know, um, treat us kindly in that regard. And then you have to make decisions and make allocations. And so the last budget happened before COVID. So the last budget is like, it's like a whole other world. Like I would say that our current, you know, estimates are probably, I mean, we've had the economic updates, but like, you know, fundamentally it's, you know, it, it was a, a work of fiction at this point. <laughs> and so I think, um, you know, we just like, we literally don't know very much about what's happening. And I mean, the Auditor General reported in terms of one number, but um, we don't we don't have a good understanding of how that's been spent. And again, we also don't know kind of 
um, knowing, understanding more about how such decisions were made, well, you know, to what sort of to what end, like what's the evidence base? Why did you allocate money there instead of there? And, um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, we are all, and everyone's been making policy and programs, you know, on the fly in many ways, because we've not lived through a pandemic in a long time. Um, but I still think there's a lot, you know, I think we're really in a democratic deficit right now in Nova Scotia. Like we're the only, you know, legislature that has not sat um, and it's pretty unacceptable. And we have, you know, we opened schools and we didn't open the legislature. Like it's, that's really not okay. And, and this is, you know, this, this is the crisis, you know, probably of this generation in terms of, you know, post World War II and, we, you know, we have a democratically elected legislature for a reason, <laughs> just to, you know, make decisions and we, together and hold we, the government. We don't to even account. like we don't even elect our, our premier. Like our premier is in an appointed position, of, uh, uh, appointed by elected officials, right? Yeah, and you know, and uh, and I, uh, you know, honestly, I think also it's. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I respect Stephen McNeil's decision, um, but I think retiring basically announcing the summer that you're going to retire and giving folks until February to make a new decision. And then that, that person will want to govern for some time. And like you said, that person is not the elected premier. That is not the elected government at that point. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I think Nova Scotians should be pretty concerned um, at the state of democracy at this point. Um, so hopefully we can turn that around next year. And uh, uh, is that something that you, that you would personally be be interested in looking at, like a like a democratic reform after like post, you know, once the recovery is well, back on track? Yeah, I mean, I guess I I guess there are parts of this that really surprised me, like like that you know that the minimum sitting could be a day, and then that day actually could be used to prorogue. <laughs> like like all of this was just really surprising, and I don't yeah, so I don't know what that looks like in terms of reform, but I. You know, I think we need to put more checks and balances in that make sure that, you know, our legislature works and doesn't turn autocratic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. So it's been for anyone who doesn't know it, it we've sat uh, 14 days in one year. It'll be um, by the time February rolls around. Uh, that, and most of it was before March 10th. So. Yeah, exactly. There was only like a couple days and uh, it took the municipal government. I think it took them about 30 days to, to get a virtual setting up. It took the federal a little longer, but uh, uh, that was more just a debate, I guess. What uh, what COVID measures uh, uh, haven't you seen that that you've been interested in in, in seeing going forward? Um, uh, more access to data, you know, things like that. Well, yeah. So I think yeah, more transparency um, and accountability in terms of what decisions have been made um, and making data available. I think um, you know, I think there's sort of everything. Um, you know, long-term care, uh, like Northwood didn't need to happen. Like we knew as this pandemic was was coming, we knew the effect in long-term care and for older people like this, you know, and yet nothing was changed, ra you know, rapidly enough to, um, you know, uh, not avoid a complete tragedy. Um, and, I, and I do think there should have been a public inquiry into that. Um, and, and also, I mean, it seems that there's been some measures taken for like wave two, but we still, you know, it still feels like we didn't really get ourselves organized, even though not only did we know it the first time, but then the first time happened and it was, you know, inexcusable and then we're not quite ready for the second time. So that's, um, I think, you know, um, rent control, um, that's more long-term, um, 
you know, childcare so people can get back to work. Um, and I mean, I'm just trying to think about the education system. You know, I think, uh, I, I mean, I guess as a parent um, and as someone who knows a bit about, you know, young people, I think, um, uh, I would have preferred a model that did make use of available spaces to have lower classroom sizes and that sort of thing. Um, I think we've been knock on wood lucky so far. Um, I know it would be devastating to both my children if the school closed again. Um, and, and, you know, I'm really starting to have a long-term effect. So my, my son goes to Bedford Forsyth Education Center, which is the alternative adult high school for HRC. And, um, you know, he and, you know, I, you know, and the folks that go there, you know, have a, everybody has their own journey and their own story. And um, really the trans, you know, transferring to online learning was incredibly challenging for most of the students there. But yeah, so I think, I think we could have been a little more proactive with the evidence we had in the summer in particular about how we set up for the school year and that we weren't. And, you know, and I think, again, more accountability for the money that was um, provided by the federal government for education spending. Um, in the time of COVID and, you know, and a lot of my friends um, whose young people use an EPA or use the resource center have lost the, those services or had their, their EPAs cut in half. Um, so I think we definitely were not, we were, you know, there were jurisdictions like Melbourne and in Australia and BC that prioritized the most vulnerable students first so that was that was who I mean, in bc that's who went back in the classroom first were the most vulnerable students in melbourne same thing so, so specialized schools in melbourne like bfec would have stayed open um even though it was one of the strictest lockdowns you know that we saw um so i think we just haven't done that in fact we've all we you know and if you know basically um parents who young people maybe are more you know some pre-existing conditions have been like well i guess you could just keep them home we're not going to provide you with any online learning, mind you, but, you know, just like, I mean, it's, you know, school exclusion and those things have really long-term effects. And then I wanted to ask you about, uh, about your opinion on uh, defunding or, or, or demilitarizing the police or re reallocating funds, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, um, you know, when you look at the draw of police budgets on municipal budgets, I mean, I think it is huge. And I do think those budgets could be less by investing in other areas for sure. So yeah, I know it's not specifically better. a provincial issue. It's yeah, more of a but no, but like, but. you know, you know, better, you know, investment in the social determinants of health so that, um, you know, you, you don't need more police presence, you need less. Um, and, you know, and I am, you know, concerned about um the police role in mental health response um and i've been doing a little bit of work developing a proposal around kind of what 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 could be done different you know with uh, in our own family experience um at times when the whole system was not helping us it was actually the halifax regional police that were our most stable mental health support <laughs> um and so um but, uh, you know, that, you know, that was when my son was younger and I worry about that now as, you know, essentially an adult. Um, and so I think there's, you know, and I think we have all these things that could make that to, to provide for emergency response and emergency support better. And we actually have a whole bunch because we've 
fought and worked and done all the applications <laughs> to have them for our son and nobody uses them. Like there are these things that are supposed to be like your special patient number. So if you call 911 and you're like, hey, this is what's going on, they look it up and then they're like, oh, it's a young person, it's mental health and you know, all that sort of stuff. And you know, we fought for a year to get a special patient number and then 911 didn't recognize it like ever. Um, <laughs> you know, we, you know, the mental health, mobile mental health crisis team, great idea. They won't come in until a police officer clears the, the space for safety. Um, so, I, you know, on one hand, I think there are those very real questions. There's no social worker in the world who wants to walk into a really violent situation without that situation being secure before that. Um, but I do think we can make a lot of progress um, by funding, you know, yeah, funding the things that make this less likely. So, and then uh, I want to get a little lighter there. Um, did you watch the, the federal leader Jagmeet Singh on, on Twitch with uh, AOC in the Among Us game? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any, Did you have any thoughts on it at all? Okay, so um, I, I I don't know how to play Among Us, so I didn't really understand what was going on, but. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I thought it was pretty fun. So, and I, and I like, I mean, I, you know, I do like, you know, I think there are some really neat people to watch in the U.S. and to get ideas from. And I love that AOC, like, you know, fundraised a ton of money for doing that. And like, you know, it, it just, like, that's someone who always seems to be like, okay, so like, what is this? How can this benefit community? What can I do as part of this? And, you know, does it like everything from yeah among us to other things so yeah and what 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 sort of outreach efforts do you have a uh, plan for your campaign or anything uh, to do with the youth and, and, and local um well so i mean i'd like to figure out some things to do before the numbers you know the covid numbers started going up and all that sort of stuff i was hoping to you know like meet people in parks and go for walks and that sort of stuff and so i'll definitely like want to do that once we get the numbers a bit more under control um and you know i have been spending a lot of time on zoom so um you know i was thinking about doing some like a weekly zoom chat time um and you know maybe some some stuff around uh community engagement techniques and some skills and things that i uh like you know often i do training for like government or national organizations so i might as well do it to benefit our community um yeah, and then, you know, I mean, obviously the calling around and that sort of thing, um, you know, I, it is a challenge now, right now with everything shut down. So, and like, um, you know, I desperately miss going out for live music and like, you know, <laughs> um, you know it's, it's wearing a little thin at this point. So, um, but yeah, looking for different types of opportunities and definitely, hopefully by the spring, things will be much calmer. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, backyard barbecues and like, you know. What's your, uh, what's your, what's your go-to live music spot? Well, probably, I guess probably the marquee now. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, um, I was a big fan of the company house and uh, for dancing and for live music. Um, yeah, and the Carlton, obviously. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it tends to more focus around like the seahorse and the marquee and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah boy, will cool. won't it be awesome when we can go into a crowded seriously like, concert at the marquee? <laughs> I, I work. Uh, I'm I'm a bartender and okay. uh, just trying to like uh, like police people and then be mm. like, look, man, you gotta go back to your table. It's 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 not easy, yeah. especially when there's live sports going on and people wanna walk around and chat and whatnot. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, this has been great. Um, where can people find you that are looking to connect um, over social media? Yeah, so I mean, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, so in all pretty obvious, I think, in terms of Lisa Lachance and Lisa Ann Lachance on Instagram. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a website, um, that's lisalachance.ca. So a lot of that's like my, more of my work background, but, um, can definitely delve deep there. And, um, yeah. And then obviously, you know, people are welcome to email me at, I have a Gmail set up at lisaannlachance at Gmail. Dot com. So, and what about I'm, wisdom? Wisdom to action. Where can people find you there? So that's wisdomtoaction.org, and it also links off my website. Um, and and again, also yeah, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at wisdom to action. And are you, are you guys looking for for volunteers at wisdom to action, or or where can people donate if, if uh, just on the website? So yeah, yeah. So we're I mean because we're actually just launching our nonprofit application, so we're actually like we don't we don't take donations per se um uh at this point and but um and in terms of volunteers i mean honestly i spend a lot of time arguing um for organizations who can to pay young people to do work <laughs> so, so so um so i'm always asking questions around honorarium and um and that sort of thing um and, or like uh we've you know one of the things that i am particularly proud of and have loved as part of this interaction is really um working with young people often starting, I don't know, say late teens, um, early twenties, um, who are like activists, um, uh, or, you know, involved in advocacy in some way, um, and getting them more and more involved in different types of sort of the types of contract work we do. So whether that's engagement stuff or evaluation or research, um, and essentially helping like they become professionalized in, in those ways and that sort of thing. So, yeah. So all to say is I don't need any volunteers right now, but I'll, you know, eventually we we're we're looking forward to launching our nonprofit, um, and uh, and then at that point there might be a need. But. So I'm going to assume you were not very pro uh, Canada Student Service Grant um, or whatever it was called there with the with the we. No, no, the and you know I mean, uh, uh, no, I mean I think basically that could have become more Canada summer employment for instance like but yeah i that that whole setup was just such a disaster and yeah, like, yeah, i worked it out it was uh it was about five dollars an hour if you did like every, if you did the max amount and everything yeah which, I, mean, I was just i was pretty appalled um and you know and uh you know i've had some concerns about the we model for a long time like a long time like since they started because i was in children's rights at CEDA uh, when all when they really were getting going children, and yeah. um so yeah, so I have a lot of concerns around volunteer, all in tourism, um, and that kind of model. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think it builds solidarity, which I think is, you know, what you need to build for justice. So, um, yeah. And then we also, um, much to my surprise, I had a really like interesting phone call, but apparently they had named us in their application to the federal government as one of the service delivery partners and hadn't told us. They only contacted me during the summer when everything was being subpoenaed. Right. I was like, what? Like, I just like, this is not how you do partnership either. Just by the way, just saying like, that's not okay. Apparently <laughs> it is from their perspective. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, that, that's great. Uh, I, I appreciate you joining us. This is great. Yeah. Love to, love to have you back again just before the election. Yeah, that would be wonderful. 
All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was a great interview. Thank you again to Lisa. Thank you for listening to this episode of Husky Talk. If you have any feedback or episode ideas for the show, you can reach me at jeremy.heb at smew.ca. Make sure to subscribe on Apple and Spotify, as well as to follow the Smew Journal on Instagram and Twitter at the Smew Journal, and like us on Facebook. For more content, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel for monthly videos, and of course, visit thesmewjournal.ca for our written content. While there, make sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter and check out our current job openings. Signing off here, you can find me on Twitter at Hebicopter, and I'll catch you next month here on Hustle.